I'd like to welcome you this morning to our reading time. And today we're going to be reading from Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. And now there's gum in my hair. When I get out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, say it with me, no good, very bad day. Very good. You're going to get to do that again in a minute. I could tell that because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Mayo was his next best friend, and that I was his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. <laughs> I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. <laughs> it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Well, what I wish today I wish I was just going to tell you a children's story. One that we can go to the public library and take out. The story I'm going to tell you today is not found in the public library in the children's section, but it is a public story. It is our story. In fact, looming large in the Christian story, looming large is the reality the suffering, and the consequences of something we don't want to talk about. And that's sin. We don't want to talk about that. As a culture and as church, we don't want to talk. But if we're going to talk about grace, we've got to tell the whole story. Even the world knows there's something wrong. Even the world understands there's some kind of disorder in the story, even when we joke and someone says, well, the devil made me do it. But today we're, we're not just talking about a joke or a problem and definitely not a children's story. But rather today, we encountered the insidious destructive force of sin and the patterns of sinfulness that mar God's prized creation. But for grace to be grace, for grace to be good news, we must also face up to and face down the bad news of sin personally, corporately, and universally. So today we're going to take a walk. We're going to tell a story. And we're going to tell the story about the part of the garden where the light seemed to go dim. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the servant said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Then the eyes... She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we ended not with our view of God, but with God's view of mankind, his view of you, me, us, and God's conclusion when he looks at you, me, us, when he looks at mankind was this and is this. Very good. That's God's conclusion. We talked about how salvation's intention is to restore our memory to our true identity. I love that thought. And our highest value that's only found in Christ. How God wants to restore, restore his image in us. We see that over and over again in Scripture. That God's truest desire for all of creation, most notably his human creation, is for us to flourish, not as the world describes flourishing, but as God calls us to flourish in his grace. But after we read this part of the story, it seems what was very good was forgotten. It seems what mattered most was lost. And it seems that where there once was flourishing, now there's suffering. For us to really kind of grab hold of today, I want to, like last week I suggested you read Genesis 1 and 2, to understand the whole piece, go home and read all of Genesis 3 today. And you land on this place of suffering. It was mankind's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Why? I'm going to suggest to you that there are four choices that were made, four implications as a result of those choices that are still true for us today. And we must acknowledge them, know them, own them, see them, if we're going to understand what the optimism of grace really is about. Why was it such a bad day? Well, first of all, it's the day that God became an object. It's the day that mankind turned God into an object. The great loss of that bad day wasn't really for Adam and Eve. I mean, it's there, we know that, we acknowledge that, we feel that even today in our lives. But that day, the image of God was marred. That day, the view of God was marred, was misrepresented, was mistreated. These who were made in the divine image now turn that same God into an object. He's referred to in the third person God is. First of all, by the serpent. We see that. But also by mankind. He's referred to in the third person now he's removed a little bit from them. God is, we see, now lowered 
to being a utility for mankind's use and God's beautiful creation becomes something used for mankind's pleasure and purposes, not for God's. Remember these words? Hear them again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, right, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, didn't matter the boundary that God set up. It didn't matter what God thought. She thought this would be good. She wanted this. This was good for her. So she ate it. When we read that and we run that through the filter of the values of a world like ours, we say, well, of course you will eat the fruit. Come on. Of course you do. I mean, come on. If it's going to make you look good, if it's going to help you get ahead, if it's going to give you what you want, if it's going to make you feel good, if it's going to make sure that life works out the way you want it to, yes, you should go for it. So she ate the fruit. Not ordering it around God's purposes, but around her own pleasures, around her own senses. So we need to beware of God and his creation becoming a utility. We just sang about the king of glory. He needs to rightfully stay there. We, we need to beware about him becoming just a utility that we use. The apostle says it this way. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So be it. So let's not worship the created, but the creator. But you see, that day God became an object. But, but that leads to something else, and all of these lead to one after another. And the second is this. Self-interest takes center stage in the story. Now, a natural result of objectifying God is that we remove him from the center and we put ourselves in the center. The irony of it to me is that, you know, they saw, and she saw the fruit and said it was very good, or it was good. God saw mankind and said it was very good, right? They began, mankind began to see creation, not God, as the best good for them, based off of their self-interested senses. That's really important. And as the, the Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna said, egotism, greed, and self-interest now govern human action. Later on, and this is why you need to read all of Genesis 3, later on something very interesting happens. For the first time in the Bible, when it comes to the human interaction, the singular personal pronoun I is used. And we see it predominantly with Adam. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid, I ate. And then Eve says, I ate. As they're trying to defend their position with God, they revert to the personal singular use, I. Self is placed in the center. Here's what's really critical about that. When the divine image was breathed, was given, was implanted, it was done in community. Male and female, he created them. It was a community, God and mankind. And whenever we start putting self into the center, you know what we do? We extract ourselves from community. 
And, and, and when we do that, we begin to push others and God out of the way so that we can have our self-interest rule. It's a powerful thought for us today. Because you see, what happened was selfishness now motivates the fruit eaters. And from this time forward, watch how that unwinds. Watch how there's rationalizing of sin. We see that when Adam blames Eve. We see that when Eve blames the serpent, and on and on. Tumble time forward. Keep reading your Bible. Keep getting through the Word of God. Tumble time forward, and what you see is you see mankind is sort of like going down a hill. When you're a kid, maybe you tumble down a hill, and all of a sudden you're out of control, and you're going down a hill. It's just like that. It's like a big snowball going down a hill. Next thing you know, Cain is murdering Abel. And we have our first homicide. And then we see what God began to see when he looked at his prized creation. And we hear in the message paraphrase these words, God saw that human evil was out of control. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. And then watch Watch as the wheels of power and commerce and culture build a great tower called confusion. That's what Babel means. And what we see is that the great leaders of commerce and culture have a new God. Their progress, their human progress, becomes their God. You see, this is what happens when self-interest moves to center stage. We begin to think that we are God. And we begin to relinquish our true identity, which leads us to the third choice, the third implication. And that's our freedom is lost. In this country of ours that defends freedom, and this state especially that we live in, right? this is important truth. Our freedom is lost. I want you to hear some of the most beautiful words in human history, ever recorded in human history. They come as the summary capstone piece of the creation of mankind. It's the final word on the creation of mankind. Genesis 2 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. That's how mankind's, the account of mankind's creation ends. Now, we read that and we blush a little bit. But that is because of what nakedness has come to mean us, to us, in a fallen posture. But for them, in that place and state, it was a picture of complete freedom and honesty before God. And one another. It was this incredible freedom. It was them being who they were intended to be as masterpieces from God's creative hand. But, but, then, but then something happens. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Yes, you see, what happened is now they have what they wanted. They have knowledge that they thought they could handle. Now they had insight that they thought would make them wise. But that's not what happened. They thought freedom, they thought freedom 
was getting whatever they wanted. They thought freedom was getting their way. They thought freedom was defined by their want and their will. And they failed to see that when God put a boundary, he was actually giving them freedom. As Justin Early says in his book, In the Common Rule, he says that freedom is found within God-given limits. So out of selfishness, you see what happens here? The lens through which they now see one another is cracked. And now what they saw in one another was not the divine image. And Adam declares the state of human hearts ever since. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, verse 10 says. So, so check it out. They went from being in the highest and truest and best sense, shameless, to coming completely, becoming completely shameful. And they lost something. They lost the memory of the beauty of the divine image. And since then, mankind has tried to figure out how to hide our sin, how to relativize our sin, especially to hide it from God. And to figure out how we can keep doing what we want, even when we sometimes cover it in words like grace. But all of that happened because of this. Trust is broken in the garden. This is probably the worst part of everything. At the end of the day, Adam is not fully disclosing to God about what's really happening. Now, if you want to find anywhere in the Bible where there's a lame excuse, here's a lame excuse. God says, where are you? What's going on? Why are you hiding? Adam! And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. No, he, he was not afraid because he was naked. He was afraid because he disregarded God's best good for him. He was afraid because he disregarded the freedom that was found in those limits he was afraid because he disobeyed. Not because he was naked. That was a lame excuse. Eve trusted not God, but the serpent, misrepresenting and misusing God and his good creation. Adam didn't trust God enough to be fully disclosing to him. It's as Walter Brueggemann said, they wanted knowledge rather than trust, and now they have it. They now know more than they could have wanted to know, and there is no place to hide. Mm. I want you to imagine today, if after church today, someone pulled up in a limousine, invited you into that limousine, and then handed you the Mona Lisa. One of the most expensive, probably the most famous painting in the world. 
One of the most expensive, not the most, but one of the most expensive paintings. They handed you the Mona Lisa and they said, here, this is yours. Yours to have, this beautiful piece of art. And you looked at that and you studied it and then you reached into your pocket and you pulled out your pen knife and you began to slash it and rip it. And then you took a big cup of Starbucks coffee and you poured it on it and you stained it. The world would look at you and they would be appalled and they would say, how could they do such a thing? And that is exactly what we have here. The divine image of God is marred before our sight when we read this story and we wonder, how could they? They had it, they had it all. It was perfect. How could they? But here's the problem. You and I already know the answer to that. Because we ask ourselves, how could I have done that? Why did I say that? What made me treat that person that way? Why am I having that attitude? It's as Glenn Packham writes, we're not wrong in our instinctive sense that we are somehow less than what we should be. Sin is what mars the image, what turns the soul inward, bending its desires to self-seeking drives like a stain, a sickness unto death, a power that enslaves. And this is what it sounds like in the Bible. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's really what Paul is writing there, is a commentary on what happened in the garden and what has happened in mankind. Because that is what happened on mankind's terrible, horrible no good, very bad day. And now the light grows dim as sin's shadow covers and continues to cover the face of the earth. The end. Or not. My friends, we cannot forget this part of the story. We just cannot forget this part of the story. But we also must remember that this is not where God begins. The optimism of grace teaches us a different story. God does not begin with the human script of man trying to bend God around his pleasures and his senses and his desires and what man wants, trying to shape God in our image, that's not where God starts. God begins with beauty and blessing 
and flourishing. He begins with grace. Before there was ever a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for humankind, before there was sin, there was grace. That's what that entire image is about that Hannah created. And because that is true, because in the midst of a garden populated by broken image bearers, grace is still there. Can you hear it? Adam, where are you? Where are you, John? Where are you, Lisa? Where are you, Trevor? Where are you, Alan? Where are you, Zach? Adam, where are you? Even after the marred image, even after the misuse of God and the worship of his creation, even after the lying and deceiving, what shows up in the garden? grace. And here's why. Because the garden is still God's. Think about that. God is refusing to relinquish the garden because it's the place of his flourishing grace. And it's what he wants for mankind. God is still the Lord of the garden. And if that's true, and it is, if the garden is still God's, then that means life is still God's right now. And if God has not given up on the garden in its mess, God has not given up on you and me in our mess. Whatever our mess may be, even after you have made God as an object to be used, trying to bend him around your life, my life, even after you have moved yourself to center stage at the expense of moving others out of the way, making yourself more important than others and even God, even after you have realized you are living in bondage to what the world calls freedom, even after you trust yourself and your resources and your abilities, and your image, and your power, more than God. Even after all that, God comes looking for you. Sue, Alan, Adam, Mike, Where are you? He comes looking because like the shredded pieces of Mona Lisa, 
that now sit in your hand. There are still glimpses of the master artist's divine image in that prized creation that he sees can come out. And so grace shows up in that garden and in your life. Look how it showed up in the garden. Later on in chapter 3, we see one of the most gracious things God does. You know what he does? He makes clothes for them. And he does the one thing they couldn't do. He takes away their shame. He clothes them. That makes them safe in a world that's now unsafe. That keeps them warm. That provides for them the most important thing they needed at that time. And in that symbolism, he gives them salvation in a sense. Right? Here's another thing he does. He punishes them. You say, time out. That's grace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check this out. In Genesis 2.17, the boundary, breaking the boundary meant death. But look what God does. He gives them new boundaries and he punishes them for their choice of disobedience but he gives them life. It's grace. God's working in the garden with grace. And best of all, best of all, the best image and best example of grace is that voice. Where are you? You see, God came looking for them. Even in the mess they made, the image they marred, and the world they ruined, and he still comes looking for you and me. He's still seeking us, even on our worst days, even when sin has done its worst to us, and even when we have done our worst to the world and others with our sin. God comes looking for us. The way Jesus said it, Jesus himself said it, for the Son of Man, right? For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. But, but that didn't begin with Jesus' statement in Luke 19. That began with God. That began with God in the garden. Where are you? So if you listen closely, listen closely today. That's God you hear saying, asking, where are you? And if you listen closely today, he is calling your name. Come. You who are weary and heavy laden, come, I will give you rest. Come, follow me. He's calling your name and mine. But here's the deal. For us to go forward and follow his call, we can't keep looking back. I had been a pastor for seven years. I'd had theological training. I had preached, by that point in time, hundreds of sermons, many of which talked about grace. And yet I was stuck. I was beginning a new pastorate in Watertown, New York, and you know what that church did my first week? They had a rock concert. Right? Now, for an old rock and roller like me, that was like, this is, I think I've went to heaven, Right? So, so go ahead and put that picture up there. So this is the band Petra, okay? And if you look down at the very front, that's the lead singer, John Schlitt, right? 
And to the right, you see the guy with the blonde hair? That's actually Louis Weaver. He's a graduate of Treveca Nazarene University. And him and I had some very interesting conversations because we eventually had them. But, but John Schlitt was the lead singer. And that, 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 that night, they, they had John Schlitt come and he did a concert. He released a new album. But one of the reasons I really liked about Petra is you, if you look at them, I just love their hair. And so if you want to see what I'm going to look like in heaven, just so you're familiar with me in heaven, third guy from the right. Third guy from the right. It's big. It's really big. All right? Maybe a little glow to it in heaven, but I don't know. We'll see. But John Schlitt, front and center, we had some great fellowship talking with John that day. But here I was, I was the pastor, the new pastor, and I'm right in the middle of the sanctuary, right in the middle, right around where Kristen was. And I'm sure if Kristen was sitting next to me, she'd be one of those people going like this. But there I was, right there. And the concert's going on, and it's loud, man, it's loud. I mean, it's loud. Did I say it's loud? It's loud. And again, for an old rock and roller like me, it was like, yeah, loving this. And um, he starts singing. And he's singing this one song. We're into the concert now. It's really loud. People are really excited. And uh, he starts singing this song, Don't Look Back. And all of a sudden, my little place got very quiet. You could hear a pin drop in my mind. But all around me, it was like a rock concert. It was loud. But in that moment in time, I'll never forget it. He said one lyric. He sang it one time. And it became holy ground for me. And he simply said this lyric, part of the chorus. You can't go forward if you keep looking back. You can't go forward if you keep looking back. And the Holy Spirit came very close to me and said, Jeff, you keep looking back at your sinful choices you made in the past. You keep letting that define you. But you can't go forward with me if you keep looking back. And in the middle of that concert, he said, Jeff, where are you? You don't need to be there. Come. Follow me. That is what we hear God doing today in the garden. Calling you, calling me, even calling Adam to move into the future with him. That is what this table is about. See, this table, I hope you understand that this table actually represents the most terrible, horrible no good, very bad day of all time. Because around this table, we remember his body given, his blood shed, and we openly and we honestly and we just clearly declare publicly this is what sin, our sin, the world's sin, this is what it looks like at its worst. Remember this. Remember what it does to people and even to God. But it also calls us to look at our own terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And as we do that, though, we also have to remember his body is given for us. 
His blood is shed for us. And in so doing, we are reminded that even in that day, even in this most horrible day in all of history, grace was there and grace is now offered because of that day, the day that Jesus Christ himself was broken open to give us life, as Pastor Mike would say. And so we do not start our story with mankind's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. We do not start our story with our own terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My friends, sin no longer has to define us because we start with the God who was held by love to the cross. That's what held him there, right? Love held him there. And who still looks at us, he still looks at you and me, and he sees that image he wants to restore, and he says, oh, I see something very good. Very good. And today he is looking for us and he is calling to us to bring our sin to him because he's the only one who can handle it and do something about it and there find life. May we now go into this new day with the power of his grace resonating deep within us. May we allow him to make us into his image more and more. And may we show the world what the optimism of grace looks like by following after him. Come, follow me, he says. May we go and do just that. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Please greet one another in the name of Jesus.